It's September 21st. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the war in Ukraine will last for another six to seven years. I've got that shocking assessment to tell you about, all as President Zelensky of Ukraine makes his way to Congress in the White House today to ask for more money and support. Second, a critical U.S. defense company is warning that if a war with China were to happen, we would be in serious trouble. And that is because their supply chains are located in China. Oh, dear. Third, a cautionary tale this morning about saying that the science is settled. That's because a climate change researcher is showing us that such a claim is rarely true. Later, we close out the podcast with a listener question. Today, it is about spies who lie, but are incredibly still a part of the U.S. government. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning, folks. The war in Ukraine will last another six to seven years. That is according to Bloomberg News with uh, reports from European sources this morning. Meanwhile, senior officials at the U.S. State Department, they are saying virtually the same thing, that the American people should settle in for the long term in this battle with Russia. So those two pieces of sobering news this morning serve as the background for today's events in Washington, D.C., all because Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky is visiting the White House and Congress today, trying to shore up support from American politicians and voters. And I'll tell you, he's doing that because polls show that most Americans do not want to spend any more taxpayer money in this war in Ukraine. In fact, a CNN poll last month showed that 55% of all voters are opposed to any more support. Plus, a Wall Street Journal poll showed that even more opposition is to be found in the Republican Party. 62% of folks in that party said last month that the Biden White House has done too much in Ukraine. But never mind that, because Mr. Biden is once again asking Congress for an extra $24 billion this morning, about $13 billion of which is for weaponry to send to Ukraine and to restock our arsenal. There is also another $15 billion, give or take, for humanitarian and financial assistance, such as paying for Ukrainian pensions and social programs. Now, this $24 billion uh, request, it is on top of another one that you are going to hear about today. That one is going to be for about $325 million. Mr. Biden plans to announce that for various weapon systems today. Congress has already authorized that amount of money for Mr. Biden to spend, and so he will. Well, all of that spending is making some Republicans in the House especially anxious and angry. A number of these members say that, well, not one more penny for Ukraine. And they say they are going to torpedo a, a separate budget deal over this matter. As listeners know, there is a government shutdown that is probably going to happen perhaps in about 10 days time unless a deal is struck. But this Ukraine cash, it's going to be an obstacle to getting that deal done. Meanwhile, other House Republicans are expressing anger this morning about more aid for Ukraine because of the issue of corruption. As listeners know, Ukraine has long been one of the most corrupt countries in the entire world, and that concern has not gotten any better, at least not according to a recent special report by Reuters News Service. I've got the link to that report in the transcripts if you want to dig into that issue. 
Finally, other House Republicans, like Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he's a bit more inclined to continue to support Ukraine with cash and weaponry, but he's still asking some pretty important questions, namely these. First, where's the accountability for the money that we have already spent? And second, what precisely is the plan for victory in Ukraine? What is the exit strategy, in other words? Well, to the first question, defenders of Ukraine war spending say that actually the Pentagon and State Department have already agreed to send in more inspectors and auditors to account for all the things that we've sent. And while that is true, the Defense Department on Monday declassified a report that found a series of lapses in the delivery of our aid, including a bunch of lost items and outright theft, even very lax security around the more uh, sensitive items that we're sending. But I'll tell you, it's Mr. McCarthy's second question. You know, what is the plan for victory? The exit strategy? That is on the lips and minds of most people in Washington, D.C. and European capitals this morning. And that is because, as I have briefed you all on previously, Ukraine's counteroffensive against the Russians, it's not going as well as expected. Some folks are blaming Ukraine for that. Others say it's, well, it's Russia. They're actually learning and adapting from their earlier losses. But nevertheless, a growing number of senior officials in the U.S. and Europe believe that, yeah, this war is going to go on for years. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, six to seven more years. That is according to European officials that were uh, recently interviewed by Bloomberg News. But I'll tell you, for defenders of Ukraine and war, uh, war spending in general, this very long war, it's worth it, all right? No matter how many hundreds of billions of dollars it might take. And that is, according to these folks, because Russian aggression has to be stopped. And to support their position, they point to a recent interview by a senior Russian general who suggested that overtaking Ukraine, that is just the start that uh, Moscow hopes to take other former Soviet states in Eastern Europe as well in the next number of years. Now, I should note that that is not Kremlin policy, at least officially stated, or Putin's stated objectives, but it is certainly an ominous statement that is worthy of our consideration. But be that as it may, a six or seven year long war, that is going to get very bloody and very expensive, no matter what you think about it. And I should say, it's not only going to get very expensive and very bloody for Ukraine and its allies, but also for Moscow. And I've got an update for you on that. Russia's oil and gas revenues are set to go up 14% this month over August. And that is actually a pattern throughout the past year where Moscow's energy industry has been surprisingly resilient and profitable despite global sanctions imposed by the West. Russia has also benefited from higher oil and gas prices. That is true. You've probably felt that at the pumps lately. So those are the critical facts and data, folks, that you need to know this morning about Ukraine as we think about what's happening in Washington, D.C. with President Zelensky hanging out at the White House and at Congress. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion on what we need to be thinking about as we see all those events in D.C. today. So, folks, what I would ask is that we step back for a minute and, and think big picture. I want us to ask ourselves, who is ultimately responsible for defending Europe, right? whether it be Ukraine or otherwise? Is it Europe and their people? Or is it you and other Americans? Or is it a mix through our military alliances like NATO? Because that question of who is responsible for defending Europe that's really at the heart of all the debates that are happening this morning and throughout the day in Washington, D.C. 
Now, as we think about that question, it can be, well, a little bit of a big, heady question. All kinds of foreign policy people are going to say lots of different things. But let's make this simple with a thought experiment. Let's say that we own a house. And that house is in a pretty rough neighborhood, or at least it was in the past. It's better now. But a wise person would probably, say, install a security fence, maybe a number of locks on the doors, some bars on the windows, a a home security system, and my goodness, how about some firearms? In other words, we would protect ourselves and our families in our home. Now, it is also true that we might reach out to our neighbors and coordinate a defense, you know, some sort of system that we can all talk to each other if we ever get in a pickle. Or maybe we cobble together our money say, through taxes, and do we pay a police force? So those are certainly options. But the bottom line is that we are the kings of our own castle. And when push comes to shove, we have to defend our own homes. And if I may, that is how it has been since the dawn of time. So thinking about that analogy, I want you to consider this. Back on September 12th, I briefed you on how the government of Germany is retreating from their pledge to legally commit themselves to meeting its defense goals. Specifically, they're supposed to hit a goal of 2% of their budget to, well, for military needs. And that is a demand that is supposed to be met if you want to belong to NATO. If we could use our analogy, that's the alliance of neighbors, you know, that get together where everybody pitches in and coordinates on a shared defense. But as I noted back on September the 12th, Germany isn't doing that. They're backtracking from that pledge. Hmm, well, why is that? Well, as I shared with you, the Germans plan to spend more money on unemployment benefits and social goodies like free rent instead of military budgets. So back to our analogy, the Germans and their house, they're not pitching in for the shared defense of the neighborhood. Instead, well, they're, you know, using their money to install a pool and buy an Xbox to play video games. Now, to be fair, Germany is still spending on defense, and they are, in fact, sending a bit of cash and equipment to their neighbor in Ukraine. So they're not a bunch of total slugs. But, folks, if they really believed that Russia were a threat, that Vladimir Putin was on the verge of stomping through Europe on a march to Paris or whatever country in Eastern Europe then logic would say that they would, you know, forget the pool and the Xbox, and instead they would focus on buying guns and ammo and advanced home defense systems. But again, they're not. And that is because, ladies and gentlemen, they think that you, the Americans, will rush in to save them if Putin or whoever else might invade. And they think the same thing about Ukraine. They think most Europeans believe that the Americans will solve this problem. Never mind that Kiev is in their house, or I should say their next door neighbors, right? Indeed, they believe that it's America's responsibility, that we are responsible for Europe's security. But this morning, we need to talk about one word in that sentence that I just used. We are responsible for Europe's security. But who exactly is the we in that sentence? Well, the simplest answer is all of us, the American taxpayers. And that is certainly true this morning. We have spent $66 billion in that deficit spending so far on this war. We are being asked to pony up another $24 billion in deficit spending, plus another couple hundred million bucks or so this morning to be talked about by Mr. Biden. Again, that is all deficit spending, which of course is a problem because we are heading towards a $52 trillion national debt in the next 10 years. 
But the we in that sentence, when I say that we are responsible for Europe's security, the we is really America's men and women in uniform. It is they who would be shipped off to Europe, to Ukraine or otherwise, especially if this war lasts another six to seven years, as is now forecasted, and things escalate. But we need to actually go one further step, one level deeper, right, when we talk about the we of the men and women in uniform. Well, for folks unaware, the U.S. military is largely made up of middle class and poor families. Right? That data, by the way, comes directly from the U.S. Department of Defense and the Council on Foreign Relations. And here is why that is relevant, folks. In February of 2022, a YouGov poll was taken just after Russia invaded Ukraine, and they asked Americans if we should send over our troops, either to fight the Russians directly or just to defend NATO partners. And here's what this poll found. The richer you are, the more you felt that we should send over the troops. But the poorer you were, the more you felt that we should not send over the troops. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, as our nation's elites gather in Washington, D.C. this morning to debate war funding for Ukraine and the general defense of Europe, what polls and data are telling us this morning is this. We don't want to defend a nation or a continent that is corrupt or it really doesn't want to defend itself. Right? If we can use our Germans as an example, they're choosing to leave their homes and their neighborhood unattended. And that's not our fault. I would note, for those of you who have been following this for a while, we have tried to warn the Europeans to bolster their defenses for decades, actually, all the way back to Bush, Clinton, onwards to Obama, Trump. All of those presidents warned various European officials increase your defenses, worry about Moscow, but they didn't. And now, well, from my perspective, and I think what the polls show, it's too late, right? We shouldn't have to deficit spend more billions of dollars, especially as that German neighbor doesn't quite get it, right? They're using all of their money, not on defense spending, but on things like unemployment benefits and rent assistance. So that is why, ladies and gentlemen, I don't believe that we should be sending more resources to Europe, and we certainly do not want to send our young people over to that continent to die, which is increasingly possible if this war, in fact, goes on for six or more years. But all that said, I'm going to offer you this. Reasonable people can disagree on this, I believe. My view is shaped on my experiences working for the CIA and dealing with foreign nations and frankly, some slugs like the Germans, with all due respect. In other words, I appreciate the counter-argument here very much. I just hope that even if we disagree, we remember this morning who the we is when we talk about we are responsible for Europe, or we are with Ukraine for however long it takes. Because the we, it's not the president or his family. It's not the senators. It's not the representatives or their children, by and large. The we, as always, is you. It's your kids in uniform, your grandkids. It's your friends. And that is important to think about now before it's too late. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, an equal thanks. 
And enjoy the following messages, remembering that if you don't hear my voice telling you about a product or a service, then I do not endorse it. We'll be right back. Folks, we are entering into the fall and winter, which sometimes gives us good weather, but sometimes not. And if you have ever been through the bad stuff, say a windstorm or frozen rain, you know that the time to prepare is not when the lights go off. The time to prepare is right now. And that is why you should order emergency supplies from 4Patriots.com. And when you do, folks, take a look at their long-lasting and very tasty food options. Their food kits are hand-packed in the U.S. of A., last for up to 25 years. They include a wide variety of breakfasts and lunches and dinners and are backed by thousands of five-star customer reviews. So, folks, go to 4Patriots.com, explore their products, and make sure that whatever you do, you buy supplies that get you ready for whatever might come your way. And right now, when you buy those supplies, you are going to get 10% off, but only if you use promo code right on that first purchase. So go to 4Patriots.com. That is number 4Patriots.com. Use that promo code right, W-R-I-G-H-T, and you're going to get that 10% off your first order. So, my friends, please do go to 4Patriots.com and go there today before the lights go off. Folks, if there were ever a product that you should consider, man, this is it. Jace Medical. They provide an emergency supply of prescriptions and antibiotics. And here's why you should consider them. As listeners know, I have spoken about how China and India control most of our prescription drugs, including antibiotics. Well, what happens if a war should break out over, say, Taiwan or maybe a pandemic again? Well, we all know what happens. Our supplies of critical products get interrupted, and that is not acceptable if your life depends on it. So that is why I am proud to tell you about JaceMedical.com. And here's how it works. You fill out a simple form at JaceMedical.com. Then you speak with a board-certified physician. And within days, your order arrives at your home for emergency use. And I'll tell you, this is not for casual use, folks. Talk to your normal doctors for sniffles and such. This is for emergency use with potency lasting for years should the worst ever come. So, friends, go to jacemedical.com. Enter promo code RIGHT, that is W-R-I-G-H-T, and you will get a discounted order. Again, that is promo code RIGHT at jasemedical.com. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards more global news with a local impact. First, a critical U.S. defense company is warning that if a war with China were to happen, we would be in serious trouble. And that is because their supply chains to build our weapons of war are mostly located in China. So here's what we know about that sobering and frustrating assessment as reported by the Financial Times. Greg Hayes. He serves as the chief executive of a company called Raytheon or RTX Corporation. He was asked a couple months ago about the world's relationship with China and the argument that we need to decouple from Beijing. Now, as listeners know, that phrase decouple or that word is the idea that we should remove all or virtually all of America's economic supply chain from that communist run dictatorship which, by the way, is how both American and European leaders are now describing that country and President Xi. Well, in response to the question of decoupling, 
Mr. Hayes said that it would be impossible for his company and all other U.S. military manufacturers to fully decouple from China. As just a case in point, he said, rare earth metals. Those, of course, are those critical uh, elements that are used in things like magnets and other components of jets and rockets and the like. And he noted that more than 95% of the world's rare earth metals are mined or processed in China. And he said that for now, there is no other alternative, at least not at scale at any rate. And that is why he said, quote, if we had to pull out of China, it would take us many, many years to fully reestablish that capability, either domestically or in other friendly countries, end quote. Now, to be clear, he was not just talking about rare earth metals, but actually the entire supply chain that his company relies on. In other words, the, the, the bits and the pieces of America's war machines, virtually all of that stuff is made in China, but eventually most of it gets assembled back here at home. In fact, he went on to add a little bit more color. He said that uh, his company's supply chain in China runs in the thousands of suppliers. And ultimately, because of that dependence, quote, we can de-risk our relationship, but not decouple, end quote. Although I would tell you, neither he nor the Financial Times defined exactly what that word means to de-risk. But nevertheless, as listeners might recall, he and others in both America and Europe tend to use that word pretty frequently to de-risk rather than saying decouple. Generally, they do it to avoid angering Beijing. But it's too late for that. China and its state media outlets have repeatedly said that that language of de-risking that's just a smokescreen for actually decoupling. And they don't want to fall for that silliness. They don't want to decouple at all. Now, stepping back for a moment, I should note that this concern about Chinese suppliers and our military supply chains, it's not a new concern. The Pentagon has long been aware of this threat going back to at least the Trump era and continuing through, well, at least last year when the DOD ran into this problem. They stopped accepting our newest, most advanced fighter jets because they contained magnets that were sourced from China. Oh, dear. So those are the latest facts and data on this ongoing threat out of Beijing. I offer you this next analysis and opinion, folks, offering this in the shadows of our first brief that really was about military readiness as we think about a possible war in Europe and our involvement in it. So the blunt truth, ladies and gentlemen, is that we are not the country that we were 30 years ago. We do not have the military that our parents and grandparents had. And that is not because we don't have fine men and women in uniform who will fight and defend this nation or whatever noble cause, because we do have those folks. Unfortunately, though, we have some pretty feckless leaders at the White House, Congress and the Pentagon, who for years have watched China devour our manufacturing ability and, well, ultimately shrug off any concerns about that because they were either corrupt or incompetent or, if I may, traitors. And now we live with that legacy. And it is one that we should be very mindful of when we think about how much punch we have left, when we clench our fists and throw ourselves into the rings of various international fights. Finally this morning, a cheeky scientist has decided to embarrass his climate change colleagues and prove a point. Patrick T. Brown That is his name. He is the co-director of the Climate Energy Team at an organization called the Breakthrough Institute. It's a private nonprofit organization that researches various technological solutions to environmental concerns, including 
how to solve climate change through things like boosting nuclear energy. Well, as Mr. Brown was working at that institute, he was struggling with, well, pretty ugly truth about his scientific community. And here it is, publish or peril. In other words, scientists have to publish research to build their names and importance, of course, in the scientific community. And that means that they have to send their research to very important professional journals and magazines and get that stuff out into the world. But there's a problem. If those professional journals and their editors have a political bias or a desired outcome from the research, then a scientist and their research simply is not going to get published if their findings run contrary to whatever bias or preferred outcome is desired. Now, critics will say, oh, that's hogwash, Brian. That would never happen because scientists are above such petty things as personal bias or politics. Well, Mr. Brown decided to conduct a little experiment about that. He drafted a paper with his climate change colleagues, and the paper insisted that climate change actually boosts the risk of extreme wildfires by 25%. And they offered it up to the professional journal called Nature, and those folks absolutely loved it. They published it with great fanfare. In fact, you might have even read articles about that study. In fact, I linked to one of them that was published in the LA Times that alarmed their readers about that finding. Except uh, just one problem, it's not true. Mr. Brown only included part of the data, leaving out other data that suggested that climate change wasn't responsible for the wildfires either at all or with much less impact than the stated 25% increase. Well, as Mr. Brown later said, quote, I left out the full truth to get my climate change paper published, but I got it published in Nature because I stuck to a narrative and I knew the editors would like it, end quote. He then made clear that, quote, that is not the way that science should work, end quote. Well, as you would imagine, his colleagues felt pretty duped and they are very angry with him. Others in the climate change world are very upset. They are attacking him, calling his flawed thought experiment very bad. Others are calling it a sting operation of questionable ethics. Meanwhile, the editor-in-chief of that journal that he hoodwinked of nature, uh, her name is Magdalena Skipper, she was absolutely outraged, and she dismissed Mr. Brown and his actions as irresponsible. So all in all, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Uh, Brown left the uh, climate change community pretty upset, red in the face, shall we say. So those are the facts and data this morning on what is fairly a, a pretty tricky issue of science and who exactly gets to decide what the science really says and is. Let me now offer my brief analysis and opinion. Well, how often have we heard this next couple of words, folks? The science is settled Listen to the science. <laughs> Those are the words that have been tossed around a lot over the past five to 10 years, haven't they? For instance, when Joe Biden shut down the XL pipeline construction a couple years ago, he justified that decision by saying, quote, the policy of my administration is to listen to the science, end quote. Meanwhile, of course, with COVID, there were a lot of people who used those expressions and those words. And in fact, there are still a lot of people who believe that the science is settled and that masks work. Although researchers from the British nonprofit that is called Cochrane, they said last January that actually that's not true. Masks either don't work at all or evidence is flimsy at best. The point, ladies and gentlemen, is that 
science is never or rarely settled. And even if it seems like it might be, we should still embrace a, a constant willingness to learn and challenge and be curious because that is the only thing settled about science. It is wonderfully unsettled. There is no finish line, ladies and gentlemen, to our exploration of the world. With that, my friends, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a listener question today sent to us from a paid subscriber at rightreport.substack.com. Brandon in Texas, who, by the way, is a founding subscriber of The Right Report. I sure appreciate you, brother. Brandon wondered if I saw the report about the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, Mr. Mayorkas, who hired some new intelligence experts to give him some advice and counsel. And amongst those experts were two disgraced intel officers. One is a former CIA director and the other is a former NSA director. So here's what Brandon thought was interesting, and this is why he's flagging this for us. So on Tuesday, a little bit of background here, DHS Secretary Mayorkas, in fact, announced the creation of a new group. It's called a Homeland Intelligence Experts Group. And this group is supposed to provide DHS with a wide range of views and perspectives on a whole bunch of bad guys and issues like domestic violent extremists or cyber criminals, drug trafficking cartels, and so forth. But on this panel of experts, experts on intelligence, there are two men that, if I may, lack intelligence. First up is former CIA director John Brennan. For folks who are unaware, he is a former communist. No kidding. He's a longtime supporter of the Democrat Party. But more critically, he used his post-CIA career to become a frequent uh, critic of Donald Trump. In fact, Mr. Brennan, as many of you probably know, went on TV for years claiming that Mr. Trump was a Russian traitor, which, of course, is and was a lie. And Mr. Brennan knew he was lying the entire time. Next up, we have Mr. James Clapper on this new intelligence panel. Mr. Clapper is a former director of national intelligence who admitted to lying to Congress about 10 years ago when he was asked if the U.S. intel community ever spies on Americans, especially and specifically the organization called NSA. At the time, Mr. Clapper said, no, the NSA does not. And that was a lie. He later apologized for that. But what he won't apologize for, apparently, is his claim and that of Mr. Brennan that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. In fact, those two men said that back on October of 2020, joining 51 intel officers in all saying that the laptop was Russian propaganda. Now, of course, they were wrong. And here's what's key. They knew that they were wrong at the time, but they did it anyway, because the group of 51 was overwhelmingly in favor of Mr. Biden and or opposed to Mr. Trump. And so what they did was they, they used their intel badges, as it were, to trick the American people into, well, ignoring the laptop, which, come to find out, actually suggests, if not confirms, Biden family corruption. So it is now those two gentlemen with those careers and that, frankly, treasonous act with the Biden laptop who are now on this intelligence experts group at the DHS. And so to Brandon, 
All I can say, my friend, is this. In Washington, D.C. right now, the only thing that matters is loyalty to a party or a politician or fidelity to a regime. And what the behavior of these two gentlemen tells me is that they fundamentally do not care about the Constitution. They don't care about the Republic. And they sure don't care about this new panel. Not really. Because if they did, if they really earnestly understood what they did to this country, they would apologize for what they did, which really was attacking our republic. If I can use a phrase that's tossed around a lot now, they, they were insurrectionists. And once they realized that, once they acknowledged that, apologized for it, they would, of course, drop out of this intel panel. After that, I don't know. Retire to a cabin deep in the mountains of Alaska. Well, apologies to the people of Alaska. We've got to send them somewhere else. Um, you know... I hear Guantanamo is lovely this time of year. <clears throat> Folks, if you'd like me to answer one of your questions here on the podcast, it's easy to do so. Either donate via my Stripe account, which you will find a link for in the show notes. Just make sure you leave your email and I'll be in touch. Otherwise, go to writereport.substack.com. you got to sign up. And then at the end of each day's Substack post, you can leave a comment or ask me a question. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 